Today we will be continuing on in our Luke series. We'll be in Luke 10 today, starting in verse 38. As you are turning there, I want to tell you a story. Don't think any less of me after it. I remember growing up and going to YMCA summer camps. Did anyone go to YMCA summer camps? Yes. Okay. I don't know if your camps did this, but my favorite part of YMCA summer camp was the bead ceremony. Did anybody else do the little bead ceremony? Yes. Thank you. Great. Awesome. So at YMCA summer camps, at the end of every single day, they would give out beads for different character attributes that you had displayed during the day. You would get a red bead if you had done something sacrificial. You would get a yellow bead if you had inspired joy in someone. You would get a green bead if you had demonstrated humility and on and on and on. But at the very end of the day, after all the other beads had been handed out, there was a bead that was handed out that was silver. And that was for the best camper of the whole day. And at the end of the week, after Friday's silver bead was handed out, there was a gold bead that was handed out for the best camper of the whole entire week. Now, I don't want to brag, but I was really awesome at humility. I got a lot of green beads. It was pretty great. I got a ton of just every kind of bead, and there was one week that I was just killing it with my bead game. It was really, it was strong. I had gotten two silver beads, and we're going into Friday, and I'm like, I'm going to get the gold bead. This is going to be awesome. And they go to hand out Friday silver bead, and it goes to me. And I'm like, what? This is even better than I thought. They're just going to give me the silver bead, and then they're going to give me the gold bead. And just back to back, it's going to be beautiful. And then I'm standing up there waiting on them to call my name again, just smiling like an idiot with my silver bead. And it's so awkward. It's really like those award show train wrecks where, like, you can't look away because it's so horrible. And the music's playing for the person to get off the stage. And you hear it at home, and everyone in the audience hears it, but the person on stage doesn't. Everyone there knew that someone else was getting the gold bead except for me. And in that moment, they started to describe someone who had served the whole week and who hadn't won any awards. Oh, man, I won a lot of awards this week. This person had apparently taken out the trash every day after lunch. No one asked them to, and no one even knew they were doing it until Friday. And in fact, at the end of the day, every single day, they went around to all the classrooms and picked up the trash and threw all of it away, too. And no one even knew this was happening. So like this poor kid hadn't gotten any awards all week. But this kid gets the gold bead. And as this is kind of happening, I like am trying to make my exit. And I like trip over three people and I fall on my way down. And the ceremony just kind of wraps itself up. And it's pretty awful. Later I was in tears about not winning the golden bead. No lie, in tears. I really just wanted the counselors and the other campers to see me as, I guess, good enough, holy enough. And I thought that if I did the right things, if I just showed everyone how much I loved 
God, if I did all of these things for him and demonstrated all of these character attributes that everyone had expected from me, that I would be what I so desperately wanted to be. I would be seen, known, loved. Maybe, just maybe, doing all of this would make me holy. I think our work and our worship is a lot like this. We serve and we worship and we work and we do all of these things to be seen, to be known, to be loved by God. But we miss this crucial reality that lays at the heart of the text today. That we are already seen by God. He already knows and loves his children. And as we view worship rightly, it will, just like it does in the text, transform everything else that we do. So as we get started today, let's pray and ask God for help as he meets us here. God, I just plead that you would do a work today that is completely disproportionate to who we are. God, we do not deserve your love. We do not deserve your grace. But God, you have given it freely still. And there is not a thing that we can work at or do that is going to earn it anymore. Because God, you've already done the work. Your son has done it. There's nothing that we can add to it. So God, I just pray that as we read this text today, that your spirit would meet with us and press upon our hearts this truth that only one thing is required of us today and that's that we just meet with you. So God, I pray that you would focus our minds, attention, and our hearts' affection to you. And that God, you would just meet us here today and change us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. It's been said that people work at their play and play at their work. But I believe the confusion is deeper than this. We worship our work, work at our leisure, and play at our worship. And I want us to see from the text today in Luke 10 that it is Christ himself that redeems and rightly orders everything that we do. So let's get started in verse 38 of Luke 10. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. So at the heart of the text today is this, only one thing is necessary. 
It is only to the degree that we abide in the reality that we are seen, known, and loved by God that our work and leisure are redeemed. It is our intimacy with God that makes holy all that we do. So the text reveals three fundamental misunderstandings that distort and wreck the blessings that God has for his children in worship, in work, and in leisure. First, we'll see how we tend to misunderstand worship. That it's primarily about transformation, not expression. And we'll see that in verses 39 and again in 42. Second, we'll see how we misunderstand work. That it is the means of worship, not the object of worship. And we'll see that from verses 40 through 42. And lastly, we'll end by looking at how we misunderstand leisure. How it's designed to be about God and not us. And we'll see that ultimately in verse 42. So let's begin by looking back at verses 39 and 42. At how our worship is distorted. When our worship is distorted, every other part of our lives gets off track too. As Jesus enters Martha's home, her sister Mary immediately does what? Is this just mind-boggling to anyone else? Jesus walks in. And this is so shocking to me. She just sits there and listens. She doesn't do anything. How are you not telling Jesus how great he is? How are you not rushing to do something to show him how wonderful you think he is? How do you just sit there? How is joy and excitement not just exploding out of you in such a way that you just do anything? The beauty of Mary's action comes in her right understanding of the purpose of worship in the life of the believer. That worship is primarily about transformation and not expression. Augustine, in the opening of his confessions, pinpoints the epicenter of what it is to be human. As he writes, you have, been made, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. At the heart of this claim is a radical reality. To be truly and fully human, we need to find ourselves in relationship to the one who made us and for whom we're made. As J.I. Packer writes, the gospel is the way that we learn to be human. And this is exactly where Mary finds herself, learning in the power of the gospel what it is at Jesus' feet to be human. And learning here isn't just information acquisition for Mary. It's more like inscribing something into the fiber of your being. This kind of learning changes you. It's more like practicing scales on the piano than learning music theory. See, I'm not musical. If you sat next to me in worship this morning, you would figure that out pretty quickly. Um, and I tried to learn the piano as a child, and that was a disaster too. Um, but my mom is incredibly talented at the piano. And I called her this week, and I was like, remind me, how do you learn piano? She's like, Josh, you're terrible piano. I think, like, it's really sweet, but just... I don't know how that's going to work out for you. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I'm preaching, and I, I just 
tell me about how you learned to play the piano. And she starts to talk about how you practice scales before you learn anything else. And the aim is that you would be able for your fingers to learn the scales so that in feeling the keys, your fingers would navigate across the keyboard and create the right sounds. Learning piano begins by learning that a C note is a C and is located to the left of D and to the right of B. Do you have the little picture of the keyboard? Maybe not. Bummer. And that C sharp stands between C and D, and you kind of learn where everything is. And you learn the notes that make up each of the major keys and then the minor keys. And then you practice and practice and practice to feel your way through each of these things so that your hands know the key so intimately that they move freely toward them and produce sounds that are truly beautiful. It's at this point, now that intimacy has been established between our hands and the keys, that the student is introduced to sheet music, to music theory. That a C lays at this point on the little treble on the sheet music, and that the little symbol there dictates that this finger of the piano should find the C key on the keyboard and stay there for as long as the little symbol says that you should. Time signatures are introduced so that you know in what order and at what pace to play the little symbols and how soft and how loud you should play them. It's at only this point that the student's able to connect how they have been taught to move and feel with a larger and more complex story. It's only at this point that they're able to connect with the song. And this is what happens in worship, or at least it's how worship is designed to work. We should be so immersed in the disciplines of grace that we have already done the work of learning notes, what it is to pray, what it is to read God's word, what it is to sing, what it is to eat at the table. We learn and feel how God meets us in these practices, how God transforms us in these places, and how in these disciplines we are met with grace upon grace so that our hearts are increasingly trained to beat to the melody of God's love. And then when we are met with situations within the larger story of our lives, with trials and unbearable bosses and unruly and rebellious kids, when we're met with sickness and even death, our hearts have already been trained in how to freely and rightly move to the Father. And in moving toward Him, the fullness of the glory of God is put on display in all of its majesty. As a beautiful and hope-filled melody is produced for the world. You see, we are shocked by Mary's inaction because we see her response to Jesus as not worship. But we're wrong to view it that way. What she is doing is deeply worshipful. She is learning from the perfect God-man what it is to be fully human. As Irenaeus once put it, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. You see, to be human at all is to be directed towards something. To be for something, orientated in some direction. To be human, fully human, is to desire some kingdom, some vision of how the world should be. You and I, like Mary and Martha, we can't not love. 
So these kingdom-reflecting dispositions become inscribed into our character through everyday rhythms and routines and rituals, as James K.A. Smith writes. These rituals enacted over and over again and planted us a disposition towards some end that transforms our character. It creates a bend in us, a sort of learned, second-nature default orientation that you tend toward without even really thinking about it. And this is what liturgy is. It is the practices that we engage in that bend our heart towards some kingdom and then come back out and express our allegiance to that kingdom. In this way, our idolatries are more liturgical than they are theological, more worshipful than cognitive. Our most alluring idols are less intellectual inventions and more effective projections. They are the fruit of disordered wants. Where else should Mary find herself but at the feet of Jesus? Tuning her heart to what it is to love God in his coming kingdom. But that's Mary. What about Martha? Look back at the text in verse 40. We find in verse 40 that Martha is distracted with much serving. Is the much serving part kind of weird to anyone? There's only three of them. It's Mary, Martha, and Jesus. So, I mean, even if you're like preparing a meal or doing something, I, I'm just, I don't know. Maybe when we host people, it's just so low-key that we're just kind of like, here's a bunch of stuff, like y'all eat what you want. Um, but she's distracted with much serving. She calls the Lord's attention to it. Why? For the same reasons you and I do. Lord, don't you see me? Don't you see how much I love you? Don't you see how I'm serving you? Don't you know how hard this is? Won't you just tell Mary to come over here and be more like me? You see, the point of all of this isn't be like Mary and don't be like Martha. The point here is that it is only drawing near to Jesus that transforms anything that we do in this world. Do you see how subtle and yet how powerfully transformative this is? Your deepest desire is the one that is manifested by your daily life and habits. This means that the formation of our loves and desires is happening at times without us even being fully aware of the destruction that is being wrought against our hearts. Where exactly do things get off track for Martha? Look back at the text. She starts off great, right? She invites Jesus into her home. Hospitality. Could have written a whole sermon on hospitality. Check. She does that. It's amazing. She serves. And we know that this is something that Martha regularly engages in. As we read John's gospel, we see in 11 and 12 that there's tons of times that that's exactly what Martha does. She is the server. And that's a beautiful thing. We could have written a whole sermon and spent our whole time today talking about service. Check. 
But what is off is the heart that drives her work and service. She is working to be seen, to be known, to be loved by the Lord. But what the liturgy of her work and service has taught her is completely opposite of the reality of Christ's kingdom. You see, she is searching for her value in her work, trying to find some redemption in her service, and she has forgotten completely about Christ, who is Savior of the world in front of her right now. Worship of God has been distorted to the point that what is now most important for Martha is how she can express her worship instead of realizing that the point of all of this right now is to just be changed by Jesus. Instead of abiding in Christ and being transformed, Martha is instead distracted and anxious, busy building her own kingdom. How do we apply this? What do we do with this? Here's some questions from a great book called You Are What You Love. The first question is, what are the things in your life that do something to you? Seems like a weird question, but follow me here. Think about your cell phone, not just the content on it, but just having a smartphone and how we're tethered to it. How many times we check it a day to see how many people have liked what we've done or what we ate. How many people are pleased with what we've done or not done. Or our view or our opinion about something. You see the practice of our cell phone teaches us to be the center of our own universe. And that affects your heart. And that comes out in a whole litany of ways in all of the practices that we engage in in the world. And it distorts our worship. It wrecks our work. And it robs us of leisure and rest in the Lord. And the questions continue. What vision of the good life is carried in these things? What story is embedded in these practices? What kind of person do they want you to become? To what kingdom are these rituals aimed? What do these practices want you to love? Church, worship is meant to transform us, to direct our heart toward God's kingdom, and to connect us to God's promises, to push us more deeply and more intimately into him so that our desires become his. The kingdom that we long for is his and not our own. And then we have no other choice but in overflow of love and joy to express exactly what it is that God has been doing in our lives this entire time. And we do that, yes, in our worship, but we do it in our work, in our parenting, in our marriages, in our golfing. And this brings us to our second misunderstanding. Work is a crappy God. It was never meant to be used to be worshipped, but was instead designed to Be the way we offer worship to God. It is a means of worship, not the object. Look back with me at the text. How does the Lord respond to Martha's distorted work? In verse 41, the Lord answers her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. He goes on to say, but only one thing is necessary. Why is Martha anxious? 
She's with Jesus. What is happening in her heart that would bring about anxiety? Well, what happens to you when what defines who you are seems to be failing? What happens when you are the high-performing, high-potential manager and then you're denied the next promotion that you knew you deserved? What will everyone think of me? Who will I be now? What happens when you're the stay-at-home mom who is a model to every other person with everything just so and in line and then things start to slip, to come to crumble and to break apart? What happens when you're the perfect student carrying a perfect GPA and you find out that you won't make an A in geometry? Not that I have any experience with that. What happens to us when the good things that God has given to us, entrusted us with to be used to glorify him, turn on us and replace him in our hearts? We become anxious because our kingdom is under siege. So we judge those who we view to be in rebellion against our kingdom and we even invoke God to join our side and to punish those who are not upholding what is right and holy. Look at the text. Martha, distracted with much serving. Got it. So she goes up to him, Jesus, and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Lord, do you not see me? I'm the one building your kingdom. I'm the one doing all the work. I'm the one who matters. Now rebuke my sister. Tell her she's wrong. Vindicate me in my kingdom and my vision of how things should go. Judge her as guilty. Of course, we do this too. We judge others in our lives as guilty as well. How dare they stand against us? So we work and we scheme in our own power to punish them so that they cannot, they dare not threaten our kingdom again. And this is the progression of an idol in our heart. Is the desire to serve the Lord a bad thing? No. That's a terrible God. And as that desire transforms into a demand, when my demand is not met, I now set myself up as God and judge of the universe. And everyone who is judged by me to be not in line with my wishes is now guilty. And not only am I judge, I am executioner. I punish. then anxiety swells. How am I going to protect this kingdom? And we lash out more and more and more and more as we strive in our own power to protect a kingdom that will not last because Christ will not let it. None of these things were ever meant to be God's. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. Church, you tired? Tired of working day and night to protect your kingdom, your image, your vision of what the good life is? 
tired of working to be seen. For someone, anyone to just notice. Isn't it exhausting working and working and working for someone to just know that what you are doing matters? Wouldn't it be nice, you may be thinking, if someone just loved me? Christ's response is what Martha needed to hear, and it is the very thing that we need to hear today as well. The hope of this text and the hope of the gospel is that only one thing is necessary. And it is this, to abide in Christ and all of his promises that his own blood has already perfectly secured. We see this powerfully in the Psalms. In Psalm 27, the psalmist writes, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. How often do we only ask one thing of the Lord? We ask 70. And none of them are about him. And none of them have anything to do with the work that he desires to enter in and do in our hearts right now in transforming us, in turning our gaze to him and the fullness of his glory burning white hot, transforming us into the only thing that is ultimately beautiful transforming us into holiness. Look at Psalm 73. The psalmist writes, Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What is the portion that won't be taken from Mary? What is the one thing that's necessary? It's not the next promotion. It's not how someone views or sees you. It's not if someone hears you. God hears you. He sees you. He bends his ear from heaven to hear the cries of his children. Those things have been taken care of. What is necessary is God himself and us turning our gaze upward as we see in Psalm 27. And just gazing upon the beauty of the Lord and being transformed by it. So what is the greatest good for the person crippled under the weight of the idols of their heart today? We find it at the end of Psalm 73. In verse 28, the psalmist writes, But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. As we draw close to God, the condemning voices of our idols are drowned out by the deafening whisper of God's white, hot love for us. We don't hear their condemnation anymore. Death could not hold Jesus in the grave. So right now, draw near to the Lord. The church, the body of Christ, this people is the place where God invites us to renew our loves, reorient our desires, and retrain our appetites. 
church, know that the Spirit meets us here in this space. Not with lightning bolts of magic, but with concrete practices of the body of Christ that can script our bodily habits and reorient our hearts to the only place where we can ultimately find rest. Think about it. How often do we look for the Spirit and the extraordinary when God has promised to be present with us in the ordinary? We run around looking for God in the fresh and the novel as if grace was always some kind of an event. When He has promised that His Spirit faithfully attends through ordinary means of grace, in the Word, through prayer, at the table, We keep looking for God in the new as if the next dose of grace is dependent upon us discovering the next best thing. But Jesus has encouraged us to just stop and to look for him in a regular ordinary meal. So give up your empty pursuits. Abandon work and worship as gods in and of themselves or as tools deviously crafted to build your own kingdom. And be close to the Lord today by practicing over and over again the liturgies that redeem every little thing we do. Allow prayer and singing and the reading of the word and the encouragement of the body and the practicing of the one anothering that we see in the scriptures to re-aim your heart to God, the only place that will ever satisfy, the only thing that will ever give rest. And then church, rest in this truth. That God is perfectly satisfied with you because he is perfectly satisfied with the work that his son perfectly wrought in your place. Do not miss this. God is perfectly satisfied with you right now because he is perfectly satisfied with the work that his son perfectly wrought in your place. It is in this that God invades the ordinary in every part of our lives. Redeeming our work, our service, our parenting, our marriages, our relationships, and yes, even our leisure, making it all holy. Which brings us to our final point. Leisure was never meant to be about us. It has always been about the Lord. So we look back at the text, we see that Mary had the same amount of time that Martha did. Martha chose to be preoccupied with the building of her own kingdom rather than learning how to orient her heart toward God's already coming kingdom. But we find Mary in the text not doing anything. She isn't working, she isn't serving. No, she's using the time that she had away from these activities to do what? To aim her heart at the only kingdom that will endure. To learn to love from the perfect God-man, Jesus. You see, we want to make this point of all of this, be like Mary or don't be like Martha. And in doing this, we miss the reality that we are all Mary and Martha. And God is calling us to just be near so that he can redeem everything that we do for the glory of his name. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and not serving and not working is redeemed because this time is for God and about him. 
As Sarah Haggerty writes in her new book, Unseen, Mary was so confident in the love that God had for her that all she could do was sit at the feet and listen. All she could do was waste herself on him. Church, this is what God does. He turns vulnerability into communion. Not only our work, but every single thing we do is made holy as we increasingly abide in this reality that we have already been seen by God, that we are already heard. He knows this so intimately that as Psalm 139 writes, that even when we were without form in the womb, he saw us there. And in seeing our brokenness and hearing our cries and knowing our sin, he sent his son to die to do this very thing, to free us up from our idols, to live radical lives of love because we have been radically, perfectly loved. Richard Sibb says it this way, the whole life of a Christian is a service to God. There is nothing that we may do, but it may be a service to God. No, not our particular recreations, if we use them as we should. We would not thrust religion into a corner, into some narrow room, and limit it to some days and times and actions and places. Don't miss this. To serve God is to carry ourselves as children of God wheresoever we are, so that our whole life is a service to God. Because all of life is God's, leisure is his as well as our work and our worship. And that means this arena of our lives matters to God just as much as every other. Good stewardship, not mediocre stewardship is required here. We can pursue excellence in the way we are at leisure as well. And how we steward our time and how we experience beauty in our physical and our emotional health, in our minds and our imaginations and our care of the earth, God meets us here. As Joseph Pepper writes, cut them off from worship of the divine and leisure will become laziness and work inhuman. So the thrust of Luke 10 is not to serve or to sit. The point is to be close to Jesus and in resting in the reality that you are already his child, allow God to transform all that you do. So whether your passion is ultimate frisbee or building model cars, no matter if your hobby is golf or mountain climbing, the message is the same. You only get one thing, abide in Christ. Whether you pastor at this church or serve kids in KTC, whether you work in the sound booth or on the worship team or work our summer camp or serve here as a deacon, the message is the same. God sees you, abide in him. And whether you're employed or not, working your first job or retired, a stay-at-home mom or a corporate big wig, the message is the same. Only one thing is necessary, abide in Christ. So as we stated at the outset, it is only to the degree that we abide in the reality that we are seen, known, and loved by God that our work and leisure are redeemed. It is our intimacy with God that makes holy all that we do. We'll end here. In 1914, after the sinking of the Titanic, Congress convened a hearing to discern what occurred, what happened, in another nautical tragedy. 
In January of that year, in thick fog off the coast of Virginia, the steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant vessel Nantucket and eventually sank. Forty-one sailors lost their lives in the frigid waters of the Atlantic. And while it was Osmond Berry, the captain of the Nantucket, who was arraigned on charges for his poor navigation, in the course of the trial, the captain of the Monroe, Edward Johnson, was questioned about his role in the crash and the death of these sailors. And during the cross-examination, it was discovered that Captain Johnson navigated his ship with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said the instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship and that it was the custom of many masters in the coastwide trade to use such compasses. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the year that he was the master of the Monroe. And the faulty compass that had so many times seen adequate actually proved otherwise. Later, as was reported by the New York Times, the two captains met. They clasped hands. And they sobbed on one another's shoulders. Church, the sobs of these two burly seamen are for us today a moving reminder of the tragic consequences of misorientation in our lives. So today we recognize, like these captains, that the misorientation of our heart has tragic consequences. It wrecks our worship and everything else, and we weep over that. But church, we're not without hope. God sees us. We don't have to work hard enough to turn his gaze toward us. He hears our cries. We don't have to throw a tantrum so that he bends his ear. We are known and loved intimately by him. And all of us, like Mary and Martha, are loved. Like them, we do not have to earn his affection. Church, only one thing is necessary. Abide in him. Let's pray. Lord of all being, there is only one thing that deserves my greatest care, that calls forth my most ardent desires. That is, that I may answer the great end for which I am made, to glorify you who have given me being, and to do all of the good that I can for my fellow men. Verily, life is not worth having if it be not improved for this noble purpose. Yet, Lord, how little is this the thought of mankind. Most men seem to live for themselves without much or any regard for your glory or for the good of others. They earnestly desire and eagerly pursue the riches and honors and pleasures of this life as if they suppose that wealth and greatness and merriment could ever make their immortal souls happy. But alas, what false delusive dreams these are. How miserable ere long will those be that sleep in them. For all of our happiness, Lord, consists in loving you and in being holy as you are. Lord, that we would never fall into tempers and vanities, the sensuality and folly of this present world. It is a place of inexpressible sorrow, a vast, empty nothingness. Time is a moment, a vapor, and all of its enjoyments are empty bubbles 
fleeting blasts of wind from which nothing satisfactory can be derived. So God, today, give us grace to keep in covenant with you. To reject his delusion, a great name here or hereafter, together with all sinful pleasures and profits. Help us to know you continually. That there can be no true happiness, no fulfilling of your purposes for us, apart from a life lived in and for the son of your love. So God, draw near to us as we draw near to you in this time. Meet us, heal us, crush our idols, bind up our wounds. Turn our hearts and our gaze to the beauty of your glory. Amen.